Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. You know, I've always enjoyed uh, either reading stories or watching movies that have a mystery involved. I just love looking for the clues. I try to put together all the clues before I get to the end of the book or I get to the end of the movie. I try to solve it ahead of time. And I think part of the reason I like that is that mysteries involve discovery, and I've always liked discovery. I think it's when I was young, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I just wanted to dig up something, you know, just discover something wonderful. Or it explains why my three brothers and I all had metal detectors when we were growing up. And we'd be looking for buried treasure, you know, something that's hidden under the ground that we can discover. Most of the time, our efforts at finding treasure were rewarded with things like bottle caps, or we'd find those uh, little pieces of foil that gum used to be wrapped in if you're about my age. <laughs> They used to wrap them in foil, you know, and so you'd go with your metal detector and it would beep and there'd, it'd be foil. But sometimes, sometimes it'd be a coin, it'd be a ring, it'd be something of value. And every time that would happen, of course, we'd be out there and we'd just want to go and dig and look for more. One of the reasons that I'm convinced that the Bible is true is that there are so many treasures and clues buried underneath the surface You read the Bible casually, you probably won't see a lot of them, but if you dig just a little bit, you'll discover that it's amazing what God has revealed, what God has hidden there, and almost all of those discoveries relate to God's main one story. We talked about the fact with this series of timeline that it's it's a bunch of stories from the Old Testament covering 4,000 years of biblical history, but these stories are all connected. Almost every one of them points to God's bigger story. And what is the bigger story that he did not want us to miss? It's the story that there's a problem between us and our creator caused by sin, and we can't fix it. And that God all along had a plan that he would send his sinless son into the world to take the penalty for us, to be executed in our place and for our sin, to die in our place and to rise again from the dead so that when we put our trust in him, we could have eternal life. That is the God story from Genesis to Revelation, and that story is buried underneath a lot of the other biblical stories. And so, for example, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happens? Well, we find them hiding from God, which is part of the story, that sin comes between us and our creator. But what did God do when he met them? You know, they were ashamed because of their nakedness, and God clothed them with animal skins. What, what was required for that to happen? Well, God had to kill some animals. The first death in the Bible occurred at the hands of God. An innocent animal shed its blood so that the shame of their sin could be covered. That's what Jesus does for us. Noah's Ark is a story of God cleansing the world cleaning it, making it righteous again, but saving a family. And in that ark, there was only one door, one way in. His name was Jesus. A lot of the Abraham stories point to this exact same theme, but of course, the one that's the most clear is the story where he was asked to sacrifice his son on an altar. Go to a particular mountain, I'll tell you about. It's Mount Moriah. goes by another name, Calvary. It's not an accident. 
These stories are sprinkled throughout. God did not require Abraham to sacrifice his son, but God himself was willing to do just that. Joseph, the story that Josh talked about last week, also points to Christ. Many people view Joseph as a type. It's called a type of Christ. Why? You realize that there are no sins attributed to Joseph in the Bible. I'm not saying he was sinless. I think he, he, he sinned. He wasn't God. He sinned. But no sins are recorded in the Bible. I know ministers want to say, well, he kind of bragged about his dreams or kind of flaunted that, that code he had. But no, no, that's not in the Bible. Why? Because Joseph is a picture of a, an innocent person who did nothing wrong but was sold by his brothers and who became their savior. That's what Jesus did for us. The story's there. But one of the clearest pictures is that of Moses. And if you look at the stories involving Moses and the people of Israel, they are everywhere. You can hardly read the Old Testament without getting to the main point. But Moses himself was a story. He himself pointed to Jesus Christ, and that's where I want our focus to be here today. Moses said, you need to look for someone who's going to be coming, who's going to be just like I am. It's found in Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. Remember that phrase. God's going to raise up someone from among you that will be like me. Listen to him. This was an invitation for the people of Israel then to watch what Moses did, the things that characterized his life, his teaching, his miracles, all of that. And then you look at the story and then you wait for someone to come along who lived it out. And they were to listen to that one. Now today, I want to explore 10 remarkable similarities between Moses and Jesus. And I want to just mention up front that this is a more of a kind of an intellectual talk than an inspirational one, although I think the, the whole story of God is inspirational. But I want to look at 10 similarities between the two. But before I do, I want to talk about where we are in our timeline. I believe Adam and Eve were created by God in 4,000 B.C., so about 6,000 years ago, God created Adam and Eve. 1,500 years passed, and we come to Noah's Ark. After Noah's Ark, we, we have another 400 years, and we come to Abraham. God approached Abraham. The year was about 2,100 B.C. And then a couple hundred years would pass, 200 years, and we come to the events that Josh talked about last week involving Joseph and the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you know the story of Joseph, of course, Israel had 12 sons, and, and the sons of Joseph, or sons of Israel, sold Joseph into slavery, and he ended up in Egypt. But it was all according to God's plan, because there was going to be a seven-year famine in the whole region. And so God was sending Joseph ahead to save his family. And when it became clear that Joseph now had been exalted to second in command in Egypt, he invited his family to join him in Egypt, 70 people. And when you had Joseph, his wife, and two kids, there were 74 of them. 400 years would pass. And during the 400 years, they had a lot of babies. They went from like 74 to like some think about 2 million and that's where our story begins because there were so many Israelites that the Pharaoh and the Egyptians became afraid of them. And they said, what would happen if they turned in battle against us? And so while Pharaoh still had the upper hand, he subjected them to slavery. 
And from their slavery, the Israelites called out to God, and God raised up a deliverer. A baby was born. His name was Moses. The year was 1525 B.C. It wasn't time for their deliverance yet. Eighty years would pass. Moses would be 80 years when the story begins. The book of Exodus, or the story of Exodus occurs in 1446 B.C. when he's 80 years old. Now, with that background, let's look at the comparisons. And obviously, with 10 of them, I'm going to go quickly, so don't get too concerned. Don't go to sleep on me either. Number one, both Moses and Jesus showed up after 400 years of biblical silence. It's just the first sign here I just want to mention. God had told Abraham that his descendants were going to be in Egypt a long time. You know, you remember how God said to Abraham, you're going to become a mighty nation. Your descendants will be like the stars in the heaven. At the time, Abraham had no kids. But when God told Abraham that, God told Abraham something else. Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed for." hundred years. So God was telling Abraham ahead of time that, you know, you're going to have a lot of descendants, but they're going to go through a hard time. 400 years will pass. Now we skip ahead to the New Testament. You may or may not realize this, but between the Old and New Testaments, there's 400 years. There was a period of silence leading up to Moses showing up on the scene. 400 years where where's God? No scripture being written, nothing happening. And then Moses was born. Same thing happened at the birth of Jesus Christ. You, you end up with the, the Old Testament. And Malachi, you're done with the Old Testament there. 400 years passed silence, but then all of a sudden, I think the people could have been expecting what was happening. Second point, both Moses and Jesus were pursued by a ruler who wanted them dead shortly after they were born. Because of the number of Israelites being born, one of the other plans of Pharaoh in terms of population control was to kill all the baby boys that would be born in the Hebrew households. And so in Exodus 1.22, we read, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile. But let every daughter live. So it's just the boys. Let the daughters live here. Sound familiar? Yes, of course, the same thing happened in the New Testament with Jesus. You remember some visitors came from Persia or Babylon, Magi. You know, they're astronomer priests. They show up in Jerusalem. Where's he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star while we were in the east, and we've come to worship him. Herod was king at the time, and he did some research. Where's this Messiah to be born? They said Bethlehem. So, Herod told the Magi, go find him. When you find the baby, come back and tell me where he is because I want to worship him too. But of course, that wasn't his intent. Just like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, Herod viewed Jesus as a threat to his throne, a threat to his dynasty. So he came up with a plan. He wanted to kill him. But God warned the Magi. God told the Magi after they found Jesus, go back a different way. And so we read about it in Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, which was by the way a trick for them to sneak back a different way. They had a large caravan. When he saw he'd been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem. 
who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Of course, both of the actions on the part of these rulers was inspired by the devil. If the devil could keep Moses from being born or Jesus from being born, then the people could not be saved. But it happened to both of them. Third, both Moses and Jesus spent their younger years in Egypt. Both lived there for a while. Of course, we know about Moses in Exodus 2, 3, when he was born, he refused, or I'm sorry, she refused to, to kill him. But at a certain point, Moses got kind of big, and he's like, how do you hide him? And she came up with this idea. She put him in a basket. We read in Exodus 2, 3. But when she, Moses' mother, could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Of course, actually the word for this is it's an ark. It was a little ark to save Moses here. Now, if you know the story, Moses' mother didn't just drop the basket in the water and watch it sail down the Nile. She sent her daughter... Miriam to go watch and see what would happen and the basket ended up where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing and, and she saw the basket and so she sent someone to get the basket and when she opened it up she saw that it was a Hebrew baby and she decided to raise this baby in the palace as her own. She knew it was a Hebrew baby but I'm going to raise it as if my, it's my own in a palace in the king's court like Jesus came from the palace in heaven, coming down. Going forward in the story, after the Magi left, when we come to Jesus, God warned Mary and Joseph to flee. He warned what was happening in Matthew 2, 13 and 14. After they, the Magi, were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. This temporary flight to Egypt, by the way, was prophesied in the Old Testament. Prophet Hosea talked about this, and Matthew referred to this in Matthew 2.15. It says he, it's a reference to Joseph, or Joseph and his family, he stayed there, a reference to Egypt, until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. It was part of God's plan. Both of them were in Egypt. Both were called out of Egypt. But the similarities continue. Number four, both Moses and Jesus chose to identify with those they came to save. Moses could have spent his whole life living in a palace in luxury. He had it made. He had life better than anyone he knew. What an opportunity for him, but that's not what he chose. He chose to identify with the Hebrew slaves. We read in Hebrews 11, 24 and 25, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. Jesus did the same thing before he came to this earth for all eternity. He's the Son of God, God the Son, living in the glory of heaven. But he chose to come to this earth and take on the role of a slave, to serve, to give his life a ransom for all. In Philippians 2, 7 and 8, we read instead, he, Jesus, emptied himself 
by assuming the form of a slave. Uh, kind of sounds familiar, uh, another Hebrew slave like Moses. Taking on the likeness of man, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. That's how far he was willing to be a slave. Another similarity, though, between the two. Number five, both Moses and Jesus were shepherds. One, of course, was a physical shepherd, and then Jesus was a spiritual shepherd. You may remember the story of Moses then. He was 40 years old. He was still living at the palace, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and he got so angry that he killed the guy. That's kind of a... You know, a lot of the people in the Bible we read about, they're kind of real people that did some, like, not-so-nice things. But he killed the guy and buried him, and he thought he got away with it, but the next day he discovered that what he did had been found out. His life was in jeopardy, and so he fled for his life. Moses took off at the age of 40, ended up in the land of Midian. The people of Midian were descendants, actually, of Abraham by one of Abraham's other wives. After Sarah had died, he had remarried. And he ended up in the household of a priest of Midian, probably worshiped the true God because he was a descendant of Abraham. And he married the Midianite daughter, and he became a shepherd. In Exodus 3.1, we read, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And, of course, this is where God appeared to him and said, I want you to go to Pharaoh, let my people go. Jesus was, of course, a shepherd as well in a spiritual sense, but he was kind of like his ancestor David, who was also a shepherd, kind of runs in the family. But Jesus said these words in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And I think Jesus identified himself as a shepherd specifically to attach himself to Moses and the story of Moses. But let's consider number six. Both Moses and Jesus were validated by God through signs and miracles. The miracles that Moses performed and Jesus performed were provided by God to prove to the people that these were the saviors. They were sent by God. That what they were doing was not by their own authority. God gave them the ability to perform miracles to validate them as God's leaders, God's saviors, God's people. In both cases, that was the case. Now, Moses' miracle started with the plagues. And so you remember that Moses went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. Moses, or Pharaoh refused, and so God began to visit the land with plagues. It started with the Nile River turning to blood, then frogs invaded the land. Of course, they couldn't stand the Nile anymore, so that's probably why. And then there were flies, and, and the locusts came and ate everything. The sun turned dark. People got boils on their skin. All these horrible plagues that took place, there were 10 in all. The last one, of course, was the worst. The firstborn son in every household, firstborn son in every household would die. Now, I know as horrendous as that sounds, two things I want to mention about it. Number one, God gave a way out of this one. And second, Jesus did this. He was the son of God. God did this to his own son, sacrificed his own son. But anyway, you, maybe you remember the story, what God said to the Israelites is that the angel of death is going to pass by, but I want you at twilight to, to grab a, a year-old goat or a lamb, shed its blood, take the blood and apply it to the doorposts of the house, the top and the sides, 
Presumably, it would drip down, by the way. It would probably form a cross. And Moses said, you go inside that house and you eat the lamb. And the angel of death is going to pass by. And if he sees the blood, he'll pass over the house. Everyone that took refuge inside that house will live. That was the promise God was making to the people. Of course, Jesus was celebrating with his disciples that Passover meal. It's still celebrated to this day. And he held up the bread. This is my body. Took the cup. This is the cup of my blood. That all who take refuge in Jesus will receive eternal life. But the main point here is that they both were miracle workers. And if you look at Jesus' miracles, a lot of them line up with Moses. They're very similar. One of the clearest examples is feeding the 4,000 or the 5,000 people. That miracle is not just about feeding a bunch of people that were hungry. I mean, it was a, it was a miracle like that, but it was intention, intended to point to something else. It was intended to point to Moses in the Old Testament because the people in the Old Testament didn't have food, and so they called out to God, and God provided manna, bread from heaven. And now Jesus comes along years later, and he wants to provide bread for the people. And the people challenged him on this. If you read the story, the gospel accounts, you'll see this is what happened. Jesus performed the miracle. He fed the 5,000, whatever. The next day, the people came to him, and they wanted him to feed them again. They, they wanted an endless supply. And this is what their argument was. You claim to be someone important like Moses. Well, he fed the people for 40 years. He fed more people and longer. So you're no big deal, Jesus. That's what they were saying to him. I hope you get, get the implications of that. You're no big deal, Jesus. Jesus responded, no, no. What you're missing is the bread I give is infinitely better than that bread. People ate that bread and died. The bread I give, you'll live forever. He was offering eternal life through himself. Jesus said this to them in John 6, to 35. He said, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven. It's a person. You realize the story of the man all along was meant to point to how God was going to send his son to be the life giver for the world. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. They didn't get the point yet. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty Again, Jesus was claiming to be the one to give the, the life-giving bread that lasts forever, not just physical life. But let's look at number seven. Both Moses and Jesus fasted for 40 days. Moses went up on Mount Sinai. You remember to get the Ten Commandments. By now, he's led the people out of Egypt. And in Exodus 34, 28, 28 we read, Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, he did not eat bread or drink water. He wrote the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant on tablets. We move to the New Testament, Matthew 4, 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Coincidence? Of course not. How many people do you know fasted for 40 days? How many of you know have been sustained by God longer than three days? You know, if you don't drink water in three days, they hear you die. 
I haven't tried it to verify it, but it was Jesus. It was a picture. It's a it's not a coincidence. This was God's plan all along. Jesus was the second Moses, only the better, the new and improved. Number eight, both of them came down from a mountain with glowing faces. If you wonder, what was that miracle, the transfiguration all about? Well, it's about this. But compare Exodus 34, 30, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses after he'd come down from the mountain, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. Now, years later, then Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up top of this mountain. In verse 2 of Matthew 17, we read, he was transformed or transfigured in front of them. And his face shone like the sun. Even his clothes became as white as light. Do you see, by the way, the improvement? Moses' face was shining. With Jesus, it was everything. This was the glory he had before he even came to the earth. And then skipping to verses 5 and 6, while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. And here's that phrase, listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell face down and were terrified. Two things are similar here. One is that both, in both cases, the people were terrified by what they were witnessing. But the second thing is this statement. This is my son. Listen to him. God is quoting out of Deuteronomy. God was telling the disciples, this is... This is this is the one Moses talked about. Don't miss it. Number nine, both of them, Moses and Jesus, introduced God's law from a mountain. In Exodus 19 and 20, we read about the giving of the law. Let's begin in Exodus 19:3. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Skipping to verse 20 and verse 1. Then the Lord spoke all these words, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, do not have other gods besides me. And then he went on to list the Ten Commandments and the other laws. So Moses comes down from this mountain and he brings the covenant, the law for the people. This is how you're supposed to live. Jesus did the same thing. He came bringing the kingdom of God with him. Matthew 5, 1 through 3 we read, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, the poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And you get to this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Moses, of course, had brought the old agreement or covenant, the old way of doing things. Jesus was bringing the new. The gospel writer John put it this way in John 1:17: for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, but we're supposed to notice these similarities. One interesting fact about it, by the way, Jewish scholars believe that um, it took 50 days for the people of Israel to come out of Egypt and arrive at Mount Sinai. And from that mountain, they were given the covenant, and on that day, Israel was born, officially. On the day that God made an agreement or covenant, with Israel, and they said yes, Israel became a nation. Mount Sinai, 50 days. Sound a little familiar? 50 days after Pentecost, Spirit comes down, church is born, a new people of God. A coincidence? No, of course not. And finally, number 10, both Moses and Jesus were rejected by their own families and by all the people too. 
In Numbers 12, 1 and 2, we read, Miriam and Aaron, these were Moses' siblings, criticized Moses. They said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? And the Lord heard it. And the Lord was not happy with them, with that. But his own siblings had trouble with him. But then, of course, the people did too. On several occasions, they wanted to stone him. They wanted to put him to death. Jesus had a similar trouble with his siblings. In John 7, 5, we read, for not even his brothers believed in him. On another occasion, um, Jesus' mother and brothers all came to cart him away. They thought he'd gone crazy. He was just so busy, couldn't even stop to eat, so they wanted to take, take control of him. They wanted to cart him away. Of course, in the case of Jesus, unlike Moses, the people succeeded in crucifying him. Now, we've covered a lot here. What does it all mean? Well, the similarities are uncanny and they're intentional and this is just the iceberg, the top of the iceberg. They're all over there, you know. The people of Israel in Jesus' day should not have missed who Jesus was and some did get it, many did not. And so the question for some of you today is, is what are you going to do with Jesus? Do you, do you get it? Do you understand God's plan to send his son to be your savior? And the fact that, that you need to put your trust in him to be your savior. This, was, this is God's story. This is God's plan. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There just needs to come to a point in our lives where we say, I know I'm a sinner, I need a savior, and you reach out to Jesus to do that. You see, there's a significant difference, by the way, between Moses and Jesus. Uh, Moses actually technically did not bring them to the promised land or into it. He got to the edge. He wasn't allowed to cross in because you remember the story of Moses, he sinned and and so God let him see the promised land, but he couldn't enter in. It's part of the message that the Old Testament law can't get, bring you into the promised land. But what's interesting about the story is that there was a young man that did lead the people of Israel into the promised land. His name was Joshua. The Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua is Jesus. All along it was Jesus that led them into the promised land. I mean, it was the physical man named Jesus in both the Old and the New Testaments. But have you put your trust in Him? If you're someone who already knows Christ, I want to just throw out a few applications. One is, I just encourage you as you're reading your Bible to look for the clues. There's a lot there. There's buried treasure there. And I think oftentimes we won't take the time. Second, I, I hope that just talking about this strengthens your faith. Your personal faith, but also the, the faith you have when you're sharing Christ with other people to realize, this is, you can't make this up. This is, this is God's design all along. And then finally, I want to remind us of this, that, that Jesus said that he came not just to give us eternal life, but he came to give us an abundant life. He came to be our rescuer. And really what both of these stories are about is a rescuer. Only Jesus wants to rescue us. He wants to rescue us first so that we could have eternal life. But I want to encourage you, regardless of what you're facing, to develop your relationship with Christ and turn to Him to be your rescuer. And I call, and you answer, and you came to my rescue, and I I want to be where you 
you've said call unto me and I'll answer you and whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved will be rescued and we're grateful for that and we look forward to the day Father when one day your son is lifted up when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him for who he is the worthy Lord of the heaven and the earth ask you, Lord, today still, if any have not met Jesus Christ, that they'd find him today. But for the rest of us, O oh Lord, we want to walk and step with him like a vine and branches, recognizing that he's able to rescue us, not just for eternity, but in the present. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes our time this morning. Next week, we'll look at the story of someone who looked like she was beyond rescuing. So I invite you to come back next week. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.